Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a sermon from Douglas Wilson from the series Parenting Young People, Contagious Love for Christian Standards. Check out the full audio series now available on Canon Plus. Let us worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Lift up your hearts. Our Father and God, we worship you now as the new Zion, and we rejoice that you have filled us with judgment and righteousness. We know that within us is no good thing, and that if any good is to proceed from us, then it must be the result of you making us your workmanship. We glorify your name for what you've done in, the, in fashioning us as a people called by your name. We come before you now and we lift up your name. And so, gracious Father, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. One of the traps that we fall into is that of defending ourselves, both coming and going. We tell others that all we ask, quote unquote, all we ask is that if someone has a problem with what we're doing, that they simply come to us with it. Talk to me, we say, and not about me. And there's nothing objectionable, uh, nothing objectionable about this, whatever. It is right and biblical. That's why we say it. But when we complain about those who do not heed this most biblical advice, in our instance, we sometimes neglect, since it is to our advantage to neglect, how we may not be as easy to approach as we may think. There are all kinds of ways to make someone wish that they'd never tried to talk to you about whatever it was. Soured friendships, three-act dramas, countercharges that eff effectively change the subject, and more. You get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. If you say with your words that you really wish that people would come to you directly, but if anybody ever actually does it, you really make them pay, then you need to realize that these subsidies and penalties are administered more potently through actions than through words. The closer you get to someone, the truer this is. You don't get into enormous tangles with someone that you walk by on the street. This is the sort of thing that happens between husband and wife, between parents and children, between good friends. We all want to hear smooth words and critical input from those close to us can be pretty rough. And because it can be pretty rough, we want to put that off. We want to put that away. We don't want to hear that. And this, of course, reminds us of our need, sinners all, to confess our sins. So as you have opportunity, please kneel before the Lord. Scripture says, now go, write it before them in a table and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Father and God, we confess to you that as a nation, we have not wanted the prophets to do anything but prophesy smooth words. We have hired flatterers and liars, spin doctors. And then when the unavoidable truth comes upon us, we wonder why we were not warned. We chase away any who had presumed to warn us, calling them nutcases. And then after the harvest, we complain that no one cared enough for us to warn us about these coming things. We confess this, Lord, on behalf of our sinful nation. 
We know, Father, that if we in the church regard iniquity in our own midst or in our own hearts, this prayer will be ineffectual. Father, for our part in the church, we confess that we've been unwilling to take up the task of warning. And yet one of the responsibilities that we have is that of being a watchman on the tower. We confess that we've not discharged our office in this as we ought to have done. And we confess this sin to you now. We pray in the strong name of Jesus and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, Yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. You have confessed your sins, and God has opened your eyes. You have been enabled to hear the words of your teachers and ministers, and as a minister of Christ, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The texts this morning are four from the book of Proverbs. These are the words of God. My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be a chaplet of grace under thy head, and chains about thy neck. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. My son, forget not my law, but let thy heart keep my commandments. For length of days, years of life, and peace will they add to thee. Let not kindness and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the tablet of thy heart. So shalt, thou, so shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Proverbs 3, 1 through 4. My son, let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Proverbs 3, 21 and 22. And then last, my son, keep the commandment of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thy heart. Tie them about thy neck. When thou walkest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall walk over, watch over thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. Proverbs 6, 20, 20 through 22. Let's pray together. Father, over all, we rejoice in the goodness of your word, the Holy Scriptures, and we pray that your spirit would be with us this morning, enabling us to really taste that goodness. We ask for this in the name of Jesus, and amen. Well, when it comes to parenting, you have often heard sermons on that subject, and you've often heard me say that our parental responsibility, if you're parents now, our parental responsibility currently, and if you're going to be parents in the future, as many of you will be, your parental responsibility in the future does not consist in getting young people, does not consist in getting your uh, newborns, your toddlers, your preschoolers, your uh, elementary school age kids, or your teenagers. It does not consist of getting them to conform to the standard. You have, you have not arrived. You've not completed the task. You've not done what God has called you to do if your kids grit their teeth and conform to the standard. The task before us is to bring up our children in such a way as to love the standard. The assigned responsibility is to bring up your children to love the standard, not simply conform to it, not bide their time, not accept it for the time being because you're richer or taller or bigger than they are, but to love the standard. This is not possible to do with externally driven rules. The law graven on stone will not do this. It cannot do this. The law, graven on tablets of stone, can create guilt and condemnation, but it cannot generate love. The law, in order for love to be there, the law has to be written on hearts and minds. 
So this is a function of loyalty, and loyalty is a personal function. It's a relationship between persons. So we need to consider what this looks like in a family setting. In the texts that I just read, these four texts from Proverbs, there's a great deal of material that I'm not going to be able to get to today. There's a, a, a quite, a, quite a bit that, that we could develop and pursue and, and perhaps will some other time. But what I want to do is simply take one common theme out of all of these passages. In the text, in these texts quoted, there is one basic theme. First, and it, these, these are details that I'm drawing out from the different passages, but there's something co- that they all have in common. First, the instruction of your father and mother should be treated as a garland of grace for the head. It should be treated as a garland of grace for the head. Obedience to the instruction of your father, obedience to the law of your mother, is something you wear on your head where the whole world can see it. Something that you're proud of. It's, it's to be treated as an ornamental chain around the neck. So a garland of grace for the head and an ornamental chain worn around the neck. A necklace, a beautiful necklace, a, a necklace made out of precious metal or stone. Second, a young person should take care to bind kindness and truth around his neck And he does this by not forgetting his father's law and by cultivating a heart that keeps his commandments. That's Proverbs 3, 3. You're putting this obedience, you're putting this loyalty, you're putting this allegiance, you're putting this connectedness out where everybody can see it. You're putting, it's not just something you have on your person. It's not something you have in your possession. It's not something you have locked up in a strong box. This is something that the world can see. The result of doing this is a blessed life. Remember that Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that honoring your father and mother is the first commandment with a promise that your life may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In Deuteronomy, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the promise is applied to the land that God was giving to the Jews, and Paul picks it up in Ephesians and applies it to the earth, to the whole world. So this, the result of this is God's blessing. Third, sound wisdom and discretion is life to the soul and grace around the neck. Proverbs 3.22. Now, I hope you're picking up the theme here. You wear, whatever this is that we're talking about, obedience, loyalty, connection to your parents, is something that you wear around your head and neck. It's something that's out there that you're proud of. And then last, take up the commandments of your father. Do not abandon the law of your mother. Tie them onto your heart, it says. But notice it doesn't stop there. If we just, if that's all we had, then you have the possibility of someone saying, well, yeah, okay, I technically agree with that. I bind it onto my heart and I'll keep it, um, I'll keep it very, very private. No, you keep it, it, it's to be heartfelt. It's to be from the heart, but it's not to be limited to the heart. All right, so you tie them onto your heart and you hang them around your neck. Now, these are not good luck charms. The Bible, the Bible is not a superstitious book. It doesn't uh, encourage us to superstition. But I want you to notice that the figure that Solomon is using here sounds very much like that. The law of your mother 
is something you ought to treat as though it were an amulet or some, some kind of charm. It doesn't work like a charm because what we're doing is living before the triune God of Scripture. This is a blessing, not luck. But notice how Solomon's treating it. He says, you tie it on. Right? You, you bind it around your neck. You put it on your head. So this is the triune God of grace and not some rabbit's foot, but it's, it's out there. It's public. It's visible. Now, obedience to parents is therefore a young person's glory. Let me say that again. Obedience to parents, dutiful noting of what mom and dad say, not just obeying their commands, but heeding their wisdom. If they leave you latitude to do something, honey, I, I think that this would be the best. I don't think that's the best outfit. You're not going out in that, are you? Well, are you saying, saying that I can't? No, I'm not going to prohibit it, but I don't think it's wise. All right, what, what does a child who embraces the glory of conforming to parental instruction do? You hang around your neck. That's what you go out in. Right? That's, that's what you put on before you go out. Obedience to parents is therefore a young person's glory. What do you do with what your parents have asked of you? You do not trudge off reluctantly, muttering to yourself. No, the standard set forth in Scripture is to take what you've been asked to do and hang it around your neck like you would do with an Olympic gold medal that you had just won. That is the attitude that young people are to have toward the instruction of their father, toward the law of their mother. It's like you just won the gold in the Olympics and you hang it around your neck. If an athlete comes in first in the Olympics, he does not stuff the medal into a gym bag and then slouch off halfway through the national anthem. That's not how you respond to that honor. That's not how you respond to that privilege. And the, and the word of God tells us that obedience to parents is that kind of privilege. Obedience to parents is that kind of honor. What do you do with glory? What do you do with your glory? Well, you glory in it. If you're given a glory, if you understand that what has happened, you glory in the glory that you've been given. And this is what you see in these passages. When you hang it around your neck, when you wear it on your head, what that tells you is that the person who's the recipient of this, the person who's conforming to the law of his mother, the person who's obeying the instruction of his father, is glorying in what the Bible says is his glory. Now, Here's the problem. Here's the downside. What's the downside? What's the possible downside, you might be asking? Well, the downside is that there's nothing more uncool. Right? This is not in accord with the latest fashion. The latest fashion says that dad's an idiot. Mom doesn't understand. They don't know nothing. Now, the Bible tells us that your parents are sinners. Your parents struggle with temptation just as you do. But the Bible does not allow us to dismiss uh, parental authority does not allow us to dismiss the wisdom of age. The <clears throat> something that has been afflicting our culture since the time of probably at least the time of Rousseau, but you can track it to, to Rousseau. The, the whole idea of the noble savage comes from Rousseau. With the, the civilization sort of corrupts us. Civilization is the thing that gives us all our hangups. And what, if you want to find someone who's really innocent, someone who's uncorrupted, you've got to go to the South Sea Islands and find the noble savage there. So this. This is why this is why we have what Pastor Sumter at Trinity has called the Disney gospel. Right. Here's the Disney gospel. And this is a feature of Disney films consistently. Your parents don't know. Your parents don't understand. Here's the Disney gospel. Don't worry. They don't get it. 
Don't worry. And if you just stick to your guns and keep stay in love with that boy, if you just do whatever it is your heart tells you to do, because your heart's not going to be wrong, just follow your heart. Reach down deep. Pull it up from within. Ignore what these gray heads are telling you and just do what you feel. All right. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? Have any of you ever heard any of this stuff before? We are surrounded by it. It is the atmosphere that we breathe. And it's the atmosphere that young people today breathe. Even Christian young people, if, you, if you're not holed up in a cabin in the woods somewhere and you're interacting with the world at all, this is a constant pressure. And if you say, not only am I going to do what my parents say, I'm going to wear it on my head. Not only am I going to do what my parents say, I'm going to drape it around my neck like it was a Hawaiian, what do you call those things? Lay, thank, thank, thank you. One of those flower thingies, brightly colored. Everybody can see it. They may not know what to call it, but they can see it. So, now, some, the, here's the problem. Here's the next problem. I hope you kids got that message. This is the point in the message where many parents are elbowing each other and praying that that, that little pill of an adolescent is listening. This is the point where some of you are doing all that you can to refrain from looking down your row to see if somebody is paying attention. (laughs) But this is not a life of ease for parents and a glory of raw obedience for the kids. An obedience that drops mysteriously out of the sky. That's not where this, that's not where obedience of the kind that Solomon is talking about. That's not where it comes from. It doesn't drop out out of the sky where the parents say, here's your verse, go to it. No. Where does this, where, where does this glory come from? How does it come about that kids want to put that garland on? How does it come upon, uh, come about that kids want to put that necklace on? It does not work with raw demand. Obedience of the kind described here arises from personal loyalty. Obedience of the kind here arises from personal loyalty, and there is no other way. All right, If you just grit your teeth and do it because the law says over there, and you've got the law abstracted from a person, the, the, the Godhead, the personal triune God, or the person uh, that is your father, or the person that is your mother, if you detach this and you just are pursuing raw obedience, it's not obedience. Obedience glories in it. Obedience loves being obedient. If you, if you, if you don't love being obedient, it's, it's not obedience. It's pharisaical. So obedience of the kind described here arises from personal loyalty. Where does love come from? Where does this loyalty come from? As always, God models it for us. If God, God wants us to understand how this sort of thing is generated. God wants us to understand how this sort of thing arises in this world. What he asks us to do, he shows us how to do. What God requires of us to do, he demonstrates for us. He models it for us. Why do we love him? 1 John 4, 9. Why do we love him? 4.19, excuse me. We love him because he first loved us. We respond in love to the Father because the Father initiated with love to us. Now, why do our children love us? 
Well, we should be imitating God. If we want our children to imitate us, they should imitate us as we imitate God. And that means that parents take the initiative. Parents establish the foundation of loyalty by loving their kids in a particular kind of way. Loving their kids in the way that awakens this desire to love back in a, in a way that wants to be identified with the family's standards, with the family's uh, outlook and viewpoint and so on. If we want our young people to love us with grace around the neck, then we must show them how it is worn. They don't know how to wear grace around the neck. They don't know how to wear grace on the head. So you must model it for them. You must show them how it's done, not only in your relationship with God, but in your relationship with your parents, in your relationship with others, people in your family. You must model this way of glad, happy, overflowing obedience. If we don't wear it, why should they? If we don't wear it, why should they? They don't know how to do it. Now, here's the, here's the next thing, and I hope that I hope I don't lose you here at this point, and I know that I might. You need to raise the standard, perhaps, by lowering it. Your job is to get your kids to love the standard, and if you can't get your kids to love the standard, then lower the standard. If you cannot get your kids, if you cannot bring your kids, if you cannot awaken personal loyalty in your kids such that they love what you love, follow the way you follow, embrace with gladness what you embrace with gladness, if that's not happening, then you need to lower the standard. Now, important qualification. I'm not talking about God's commandments, which you have no authority whatever to lower. All right, God's commandments are not your commandments. If your kid doesn't love you, let's say you don't shoplift and your kid doesn't love your standard and they're shoplifting all the time, you don't have the authority to lower the standard. That's God's law. God says you can't steal. God's law says you can't be guilty of sexual morality. God's law says you can't steal. God's law says you can't do certain things. And parents who have lost control of their household have no authority to lower God's standards. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying God's standards. I'm not saying that we have any, any right or responsibility to do that. We have no authority to lower his standards. I'm rather addressing the place where the rub comes, almost always comes, in situations like ours. I'm, t- I'm addressing situations that involve house rules. House rules are not synonymous with God's rules. When you show up for breakfast, how you make your bed, whether or not you spend time on Facebook, it's not in the Bible. Those are not God's rules. Now, honor your father and mother is in the Bible. So consequently, if mom or dad say make your bed or clean your room or do these things, then that law of God says that the, the child is obligated to do what the parent says. There should be obedience. That is in the Bible. But let's say the, the child is doing it or not sometimes doing it, but when they do it, their obedience is surly. Right? When a child obeys parents, the obedience is surly. Now, We all know that that child ought not to be obeying the parents with a surly attitude. That is not conforming to God's standard. But what does God's word tell the parent in that situation? What does God's word tell the parent? Well, I would say uh, uh, this, and this happens a lot. Many parents, many engaged in homeschooling, many teachers in Christian schools do not understand how to bring kids along where they gladly embrace what's being asked of them. And if it's not happening, pressing on isn't getting you anywhere. If you, if you say, we don't know where we are, we're totally lost, but we're making good time. 
We're, we're still going 60 miles an hour down what road? I don't know, but we're making good time and I'm behind the wheel and that's what matters. That's not what you want. So you want to address all the questions that surround house rules. Lower the standard to the point where everybody in the family can pitch in together, where everybody in the family is on the same team and working together, get that going, and then take the next step to raise the standard all together. This is not simply, if you're paying attention to what I'm talking about, you're not simply lowering the standard, uh, and, and I'm not exhorting you to do this, and you're saying, why is the preacher telling us what we need around here is lower standards? Why is it? I can't believe I'm hearing this in a sermon. Well, doing this is actually raising the parental standard. It's actually raising the parental standard. If you're hauling a 10-pound fish in on a 5-pound line, yanking is not what you want to do, right? If you just yank and the line snaps, what good is that? You could say, well, I'm, I've maintained control of the fishing pole. That's what matters, No, that's not what matters. That's not the point. You went out in the boat at 5 a.m. because you wanted to bring home a fish. You don't yank. The point is to bring everybody along. And if you're not bringing everybody along, if you're losing everybody, then you have and you say, but what matters is I'm going to insist on my own authority. I'm going to insist on my right to hold the fishing pole or I'm going to insist on my right to stay behind the wheel. If you're insisting on that and it doesn't matter if to use the illustration of driving down the, the, the road, if you're driving, if all your kids have bailed out of the car and nobody's with you anymore, what does it matter? What does it matter? What's the point? When I say lower the standard, I'm not saying lower the standard. I'm not saying become a relativist. I'm not saying chuck it. I'm not saying give up on God's law. None of that. What I'm saying is when you lower the standard the right way, what that's actually doing, when you lower the standard because you've embraced your responsibility to get your kids to love whatever standard you've lowered it to, that's actually raising the parental standard. And that's why we don't like it. We say we don't like it because he's the preacher's telling us to lower the standards. And I think I need to stick to my guns. I don't think it's good for kids to spend all day typing with their thumbs. I don't think it's healthy. Well, neither do I. Who, who said it was healthy to type all day with your thumbs? Who said it was healthy to spend hundreds of dollars um, texting people with inane comments? Who said that was healthy? But I'll tell you what's more unhealthy. And that's to have a crummy relationship with your dad. That's worse. All right, do you see that? And if you say, well, I'm going to, this is a small price to pay. I'm, you know, I don't care if they have a crummy relationship with me so long as they don't type with their thumbs. You are straining, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Parents must embrace the task of communicating in a contagious way love for the standard. Parents must embrace, and this, when parents embrace this, this is raising the standard, and when it's raising the standard to such a pitch, to such a height, that parents are going to say, oh, I can't, I'm a sinner, I can't, do I, I can't do this, I need the grace of God. Amen. Absolutely, amen. That we need to be driven to the grace of God to do what God calls all of us to do. And, but do you realize that the tough thing that God's asking you to do that drives you to, to your knees, so you ask for His grace to do? You know what? If you're driven to your knees asking for God's grace to do what a parent ought to do, maybe your kid will see that. Maybe your kid will be driven to his or her knees to ask for God's grace to do what God asks of them. Maybe they need to learn this by imitation. If kids are not getting this contagious, if they're, if they're not getting the contagious love 
for these standards, then that means you're not a carrier. If they're not catching it, if they're not catching the disease, that means you're not carrying it, right? Now, some parents might protest that this is impossible. But, you know, this is too much. This is a burden. Who can bear, who can bear this burden? But when you say, but that's tough, that's too hard, what you're asking me is impossible. That's impossible. What, if that, what does that response teach the young people in your home? It teaches them that nobody around here has to do impossible things. All right? If somebody tells you to do something impossible, then I just learned from dad and mom that you don't have to do things that are tough. You don't have to do things that are impossible. You don't have to do things that you just feel are impossible. It teaches them that nobody around here has to do impossible things. And since the requirement to make your bed or to comb your hair the right way or to stop texting so much are all clearly impossible, then they don't have to be done. If you want children to be obedient, then show them how. If you want children to be obedient, then model it for them. If you want children to embrace obedience with gladness and abandon, then model that for them. Apart from a context of this kind of contagious love, apart from a context of this kind of contagious, glad obedience, parental discipline is just clobbering a kid. Parental discipline, whether it's spanking or just verbal and admonition, you're just clobbering a kid. If it's not happening in the context of love and loyalty, it's just beating them in the head. And since clobbering a kid is not what God said to do, the child is learning the fundamental lesson that in this household, we don't have to do what God said to do. All right, that's the lesson. Right? If God said not to do this, if God said not to live with this kind of snarling attitude in the home and parents on down, the, the parents with tight conservative standards snarl and the kids with libertine MTV standards snarl back, everybody's snarling. And, and the parents think that the issue is whether that show is a, is a healthy show or whether that website's a healthy website. That's, that, that is a, an issue in its own right. And yes, there ought to be wisdom. There ought to be far more wisdom in entertainment standards than there is currently. There ought to be far more wisdom about the Internet and the new social media than there is currently. We need lots more wisdom about that than we currently do. But that's not the central problem. If you have a parent with the right biblical standards snarling at a kid with the wrong biblical standards, both of them are missing the grace of God. And a kid growing up in that home where everybody is disobeying at that level is learning that everybody in this household, everybody gets to disobey. Some people disobey with Bible verses attached and other people disobey by appealing to what all the other kids in town are doing. But everybody's disobeying. Some people disobey in the name of Jesus and other people disobey in the name of what's cool. But the issue is the disobedience. You want your family to be in love with God together. You want your family to be in love with the Word of God together. You want your family to love the standards that you've decided to live by together. That's the thing that you're, that you're after. If you're just clobbering a kid in the name of the law of God, if you're just clobbering a kid in the name of traditional family standards, if you're just clobbering a kid, then what the kid is learning is don't get clobbered. 
don't get clobbered. And that means count the days until you get out of here, until you get out of range. Or it means be, become manipulative and sneaky, become deceitful as well as disobedient. There are all sorts of ways to not get clobbered. Now, here's the you've heard me a number of other times not only say that our job as parents is to get kids to love the standard, but you've also heard me quote a number of times um, a book called The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce. Ambrose Bierce was a 19th century cynic and reprobate, not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But he has a number of delightful and pointed observations and definitions. His definition in The Devil's Dictionary is Christian. Christian, well, before I get there, someone who, exhortation, exhortation is putting the conscience of another on the spit and roasting it to a nut brown discomfort. That's what an exhortation is. A Christian, a Christian is someone who believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. One who, one who follows the teachings of Christ insofar as it's not inconsistent with a life of sin. This is what happens to us. I'll tell you, this is the problem. When we are living in community, and when we're living in tight community, whether it's Christians working together at work, or Christians in family, or Christians in extended family, in-laws, uh, husband and wife, parents and children, parents, children, grandchildren. When we're tight, when we're all together and we have all these relationships that are close and complicated, what happens is this. Take Bierce's insight. Someone who believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. You're standing, you're standing, the, the Bible comes to you and, and Jesus tells, calls you, as Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And when the text comes to you and you say, this is what God wants me to do. And you realize, and you realize in the first couple of seconds after this has hit you, that embracing this involves dying. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to lay it down. I'm standing on this precipice. I'm standing on a cliff edge. And this verse has just asked me to step off. Christ has called me to come and die. Someone's standing right next to me, my wife or my husband. Or my kid, or someone who's very close to me, they're standing right next to me, and I, I'm close enough. It's like sitting in a in a row with the, the other person's Bible or their notes, and you can just glance down and see what text they're open to. You can see what they're reading. You look, you glance over to this person who's right next to you, and you see you're close enough to read the verse that's there for them. You just looked at yours, and your response to yours was, "Yikes, yikes!" This means stepping off the precipice. This means dying. Then you look at their verse, saying, that's, that's pretty simple. I can understand that. Wives, respect your husbands. What's your problem? <laughs> She's going to say, you don't understand. You don't understand. In order to do this, I, I have to die. I have to die. I understand. The, you know, I, I, I can read the verse just like you can read yours. But I have to, in order to embrace this, I have to die. You look at your kid and you say, look, our, our verses come to us. We want them, we want them in six-point font, and, and their, their verses are in 20-point font. And the thing that we're leaving out is we think that it's a matter of cognitive understanding. And you don't, you don't understand. Parents, you need to understand that in order for your teenage daughter to not roll her eyes at you, she has to die. It's not the eyeball part that's hard. 
It's not the understanding that you've got to honor your parents. That's not the hard part. It's the dying that's the hard part. And you know what? That's not just hard for her. That's hard for you too. This is hard for everybody. Everybody has to die. It's not like you're the only person in your whole life, in your own, your whole circle of people that you deal with. It's not like you're the only one who doesn't have to die. Everybody dies. And Jesus, and this is not, I'm not muddling up uh, the initial death that when we come to Christ, when we first come to Christ, we're baptized into his death. Paul tells us in Romans 6, Jesus says, that uh, uh, Jesus tells us, opposed to that definitive death at the beginning of a Christian life, Jesus tells us that we're to take up our cross daily. You take up the cross daily, and you come follow him. This applies to marriage. This applies to... So you've got husband and wife who are in an adversarial stand... You know, you know you're, this adversarial standoff situation. I don't know why she can't read those verses. Those verses are simple to understand. Yeah, simple to understand, but the dying is the hard part. Your verses are simple to understand. It's the dying that's the hard part. And what we want to do is assume that if they just did their, if they just read their verse and they did that dying stuff, then that that would fix everything. If my kids would die, if my wife would die, if they would all die to self, then they would all recognize what a swell guy I have been. No. Dying, this, uh, this principle means that you don't, You don't take the Bible, you don't take the standards that God gives us for living in community, for living in family, for living in marriage. You don't take these standards and apply them to the other person first. You apply them the biblical standard, and this is basic. This is following Jesus 101, right? This is following Jesus 101. Apply it to yourself first. Are they screwing it up? Are they messing it up? Are they not doing it the way they ought to? Then not only are they not doing it, but they're not doing it in the teeth of obvious biblical principles. I've explained to them a thousand times. I think he's stupid. How many times have you explained it to him? Thousand, at least a thousand. He's not paid the single lick of attention. No, not a bit. And you think he's stupid. Shut up. Stop that. It's not working. What's going to work? Try dying. (laughs) There you've gone too far. This, the Christian life 101, following Jesus 101, means that you, everything that seems so simple to you about, you know, how many, how many people, how, how would your life be? Wouldn't your life be wonderful if all those people in your life who are making it miserable at work, who are making it miserable with their barking dog problem, who are making it miserable with your marriage and family tangles, all those people who are making your life difficult, do you know what they need to do to fix it? Yeah, I know. What, how, and how hard would it be for them to fix it? It'd be pretty simple for them to fix it. All they'd have to do is this, this, and this, and die. This, this, and this, and die. And we say, but we tell ourselves, all they have to do is this, this, and this, and then we stop. We don't say, and then they have to die. Because we say, oh, well, I model it for them. I do this, and this, and this, but I don't die. I don't show them how to die. If I think that dying is so easy, 
If I think that dying to self in relationships is so easy, if I think that dying to self in relationships that are close, husband and wife, dying to, dying to self in relationships that are close, parent and child, dying to, to self in relationships that are complicated, like parent and teenage daughter, mom and teenage daughter, dad and teenage son. If, if, if dying is so easy, well, and they're having struggle, they're having such trouble with it, since it's so easy, why don't you just go first? Show them. Show them how easy it is. Demonstrate how easy it is to die. If you did, if you actually do this, you will show them what a glad thing it is to die. You will show them what a joyful thing it is to die. You will model that. But dying, when all is said and done, dying is dying. And that's the thing we don't want to let go of. We say, I, I want to be, I want to know my Bible verses, and I want to be Mr. Theology Man, and I want to be someone who's well-respected in the community. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be someone who fails. But failures of every kind, failures of whatever kind, are sometimes the only thing that God can use to get at our pride. You say, what good is this failure? Why, why this failure? Why this crater in my life? Why this face plant? Why this problem? Well, you're a child of God. God loves you. He does the tough things. Yeah, now, he's not doing anything to you and to me that he did not do himself. Right? Did all these things that I'm saying that Christian parents ought to model for their kids, show them how to die. Well, we say, this is hard. Did, did God do that for us? Did he ever die? Oh, oh, wait. Right? Yeah, that's exactly what he did. And he's the only one who didn't deserve to die. He became a man, took on flesh, became one of us in order to show us how it's done. And Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. This is not, I'm, I'm not telling you to just grit your teeth and gut it out. I'm telling you that when you surrender and it goes and you die, you do it for the joy that's set before you. Everything I'm talking about here has to do with gladness and relief and release and joy. Joy in your marriage, joy with your kids, joy with your grandkids, joy with your friends. Here's the ticket. Die. And you can't. You have to die in Jesus. You have to say, in Jesus' name... Amen. That's how you die. You die in him. You appeal to him. He models it for you. He cares. He, he carries you in this. And the spirit brings you to the point where you say, yes, Lord. Each member of the family is supposed to understand that the whole family is a unit. All of you are on the same team. If you've drifted into an adversarial set of roles, then the parents have to do something to stop that game. Change the rules. Do something that works. Let's suppose that the whole family is enrolled in high school calculus and the whole family is flunking it, right? You know what it's like to be in a study group with three other people and the other three people aren't doing any of the work. And it doesn't matter how hard you work, doesn't matter how hard you try, it doesn't matter how hard you pedal, the group as a whole is going to flunk. Even if, you're, even if you're absolutely convinced that you're doing what you need to do. So your whole, your whole family is flunking this course. Wouldn't it be far better to all go back to sixth grade, 
together and pass that grade together? Wouldn't it be better to retreat back, back away to the point where you can do it all together and love it all together? Wouldn't that be better? Yes, but that would mean giving up my claim on this particular standard. That would mean giving up my claim on this particular point. That would mean, and this is where you fail to understand my position, Pastor Wilson, that would mean dying. I can't do that. How Christian is that? Well, how, it doesn't matter how Christian it is. It matters how Christ-like it is. Is your marriage a blame culture? Is your family a blame culture? We'd have our act together if only he. We'd have our act together if only she. We'd have our act together if only there. Are the kids muttering about if only the parents did this? Or the parents are saying, if only our kids, if only my wife, if only my husband. Is your marriage a blame culture? If your marriage, if your family is a blame culture, then don't be surprised when your kids grow up in it knowing really well how to blame that's what they're going to know. That's what they're going to do. You don't want someone to be clobbered so that they know what you would say if you were there. You can, you can treat your kid in such a way that till the end of their life, they would know what you would say about it. <laughs> you, can, you can treat your kid in such a way that they can be 70 years old and you, you've uh, left this world decades before. And whenever a situation, a particular kind of situation comes up, they hear footsteps. They hear you coming. You can arrange for that. But that's not what you're, that's not what you're called to arrange for. You're, you want them to have a garland around their neck, around their head, a, a, a necklace around their neck. The standards set in the pa- these passages from Proverbs, these standards, it's not a, not, they're not impossible standards. They are not impossible standards. They were not written for angels in heaven. These words were written for us. This kind of garland of grace for the head, this kind of necklace is possible to be worn in a fallen world by a 21st century teenager. That is not beyond us. These things are available. They're attainable. How? Die. And not die by yourself. When you die by yourself, you die and you're dead. Die in Jesus. Die in Jesus' name. And when you die in Jesus' name, when you put it on the ground in Jesus' name, when you let go in Jesus' name, when you... When you pry your fingers loose from this standard of yours, whatever it is, in Jesus' name, you surrender it to him and you learn how to love. And you're loving what you're loving in the presence of your kids whom you also love. And that is true Christian discipleship. Our Father in God, God of heaven, we thank you that you did not just drag us into conformity with your word and your ways. We thank you that you've quickened us so that we've been enabled to love you and love your grace and to love your law. Help us to love your grace and your law for other people and not just ourselves. Help us to keep this treasure where it belongs in our hearts. We ask for this in the name of Jesus and amen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full series, Parenting Young People, Contagious Love for Christian Standards by Douglas Wilson.